Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. It's a new year on the podcast, and I'd like to introduce you to some changes that we're making to the show. We're excited to introduce our partnership program. This will allow us to showcase more of the leaders, innovators, and organizations who are at the forefront of the economic transformation happening in our city and our province. Take a few minutes and be curious. Visit their websites, check them out on social media, and most importantly, get involved where you can. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Clear Motive Marketing. Full transparency, folks. I am one of the co-founders of Clear Motive Marketing. I have had the privilege and the amazing opportunity to be involved with my current business partner, Chad Kroger, since 2010. And it has been a fantastic ride and just an amazing, amazing journey. But I'm coming here today not as a co-founder, but as a client. Over a year ago, I brought the idea of the podcast to the team, presented the challenges, presented the opportunity, presented why I was excited about it, and they worked with me to create a plan. We built a strategy, we built the brand, we built the website, and they helped me execute, and they helped me execute day in and day out as we are constantly going live with with new, new episodes. They also were a huge help in building the audience, which can be the most challenging things, whether you're a company, a product or a service, or just a new idea that you need to get out there. So we've grown organically from over 200 downloads last December to over 2,000 this December, which is an all-time record for the show, something we're really proud of, and I couldn't have done it without the ClearMotive team backing me at every step of the way. They specialize in helping brands that operate in fast-paced, highly competitive industries, which, let's be honest, is, is everyone these days, to deliver more consistently and more effectively day in and day out, something that we all know can be an incredible challenge in marketing with the pace of the always-on mindset. With offices and teams in both Calgary and Toronto, they work to make clients better marketers. So if you need a new website, a new brand, or simply a new efficient way to produce and deliver and get your get your creative and market, and get connected with your customers, give us a call and let's have a good old-fashioned chat. Check out our work and our case studies at www.clearmotive.ca. Well, perfect. Well, then we'll start with a warm Collisions YYC welcome with uh, Dr. Bob Bray. How are you, Bob? I'm very good. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. You're joining me on what has turned into a little bit of series uh, of a series of healthcare in Alberta. So I had the t- chance to talk to our current health minister, uh, Mr. Tyler Shandro, and also David Shepard from the uh, Official Opposition for Health. And through that, I thought to myself, I'm like, you know what? I need to bring another perspective to the table. So talking to yourself today was part of kind of rounding that out, but to provide a different perspective of, you know, one, not talking to someone in government because they all have their talking points and their, and their storylines that they keep in place, but the ability to talk to someone who lives and breathes in the industry for the better part of what I'd say your your whole career. Have you been in Alberta your the whole career? Yep. I've been here in Alberta for 32 years practicing orthopedic surgery. Excellent. And where, like, just to give people a little bit of context from your role of, of anyone who hasn't had, you know, the experience of maybe working with an orthopedic surgeon, um, give us just maybe a little breakdown of kind of y- your world over the last 32 years. Yeah. So it's certainly within the surgical theater realm. Um, I understand surgery. I don't understand a lot of the other moving pieces in healthcare, but I see a little bit of how they affect patients in my practice. Um, More recently, I have become a medical director at an uh, alternative uh, surgical facility, a provider, a chartered hospital, if you will, under uh, Minister Shandro's new lexicon. Um, and, uh, it's been a, it's been a great run in my career to be able to help people, uh, to see the advances in, in the treatments that we have available and the diagnostics that we have available. And, um, it's, it's been a, a journey and I've, I've watched it, uh, for 32 years. Um, I guess I would be considered a senior surgeon at this point in my career. Um, 
and I just, uh, I, I, I have a passion for, for doing the best we can for our patients because we're all going to be a patient someday. Uh, yes. That's one thing talking to, to, to Tyler Shandro, he did share, like, there is no way of no matter who you are in this world, that the healthcare system is going to be part of your life. Maybe some of the high points, but also potentially some of the low points. And also, I think why it was important for me to have it on the show is we focus on economic transformation, but it's impossible to not bring something to the to the conversation that one impacts all of us as individuals as Albertans, but also it's a significant line item on our on our provincial budget. Like it's a it's a very real part of the provincial economy that we do absolutely live in. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so maybe uh, just tell maybe a little bit from 32 years is a significant, you know, respectful period of time to have seen changes and evolutions and growth, whether it be in an industry or specifically in a discipline like healthcare. So maybe just from your perspective, and we're kind of starting starting here and working back, but just curious on your perspective of kind of where we've where we've landed and like, you know, quality of care, access to care versus maybe what it was 20 years ago, just maybe getting a little context is something about, we all know about healthcare, but I think, and I'm going to be blunt to say as an individual, I'm maybe a little bit ignorant to like the evolution or the changes. And I, I kind of take it for granted sometimes because we live in Canada and we're very quote unquote spoiled to have this great healthcare system, but I don't really maybe have a good respect of kind of where we've come from over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, well, I think I think what I've seen in in the Alberta context mainly, and and again within the microcosm of surgery, is that the access and choice available to patients has diminished incrementally over that thirty year scale, to the point where we now have a crisis in access, if you will. Um, when you get there, the healthcare delivered in this Alberta province in this Canadian uh, federation is second to none in almost every area that I can think of. But the access and the time that it takes you to get there is, um, I think, uh, I think requires transformational change. Quite act- We can't maintain the status quo and live with a 30-year-old healthcare machine that's driven by um, a monopolized uh, approach to providing services to patients through allocations of budgets rather than having the money actually follow the patient, which is where it's needed to be. You and I chatted before, kind of our, our, our pre-call, just that that patient-centric care model. To hear that, like over thirty years, you know, my belief is that we should always be getting better, right? We should be improving. We learn more. We have better technology. We have da 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 da. da. To hear that we have the quality of care, but a crisis of access—that's an interesting paradigm for me in terms of, you know, why? Like, how, how did from your perspective? And I get it. You're kind of inside looking out at it from the patient's perspective. How do we get to this access to care problem? Because it feels like we could have avoided this maybe along the way, or I know I'm being idealistic and maybe oversimplifying. (laughs) Well, you know, I think if we take Alberta health services as uh, the example of what we're talking about with uh, public health care, the way I understand it is they are given the mandate to meet the challenges uh, of the population of the province. And um, that's a very daunting task. And it's, uh, it's not possible to apply business rules in many sectors of the healthcare system, but in many sectors of the healthcare system, it is possible to apply a business-like model to look at demand and supply and to look at um, access as being the central crisis and where we're at. Um, surgery lends itself to this quite eloquently, in, in fact, because you can determine the costs of the treatments quite 
easily and the diagnostics quite easily. So you can look at what the money is that needs to be following those patients and maybe transform them the way we look at this uh, from a top-down budgetary model uh, driven system where where once once the budget is is exceeded, the services are unable to be met. But if we know exactly what the demand is, we know what the cost of treatments are, we know what works and doesn't work on an evidence-based approach to uh, healthcare, then we can create significant efficiencies in surgical uh, areas where we can contain costs, we can maintain sustainability in that, and um, we need to just deliver those services outside of the box in terms of what we're doing now. And has that been a bit in your mind? Because I can only imagine we have reams of data about everything you just talked about, like to be able, the ability to forecast, the ability to look out and say, well, historically, this is the way it's worked for the last X amount of years. So therefore, by default, we can now start to kind of future speak, future pace a little bit. So I would imagine we'd have the data. Do we just have a belief structure that keeps us, and you said something key here was keeps us inside this box of thinking. Is that in your mind, maybe where we've fallen short? Well, I think thinking outside the box, um, why don't we develop an industry for healthcare products and healthcare services and processes that we could actually export to the world because they are good. And it sounds like a lofty goal, I know, uh, but it is within our grasp and necessity is the mother of invention and the economy of our province is now not in good shape and we need to find a way out. And healthcare is our biggest cost item, but it could also be our biggest asset. And this is how you think outside the box and develop innovative strategies to deliver the best care possible to patients quickly and efficiently and sustainably based on evidence. And we are in this box in our province. We are in a box in our country and we have to get together to jump, to leave what we have, which is not good as it could be, uh, where we could jump to. Um, this job would be transformational. And that is the great difficulty we are faced with in the current um large and to a certain extent past thinking bureaucracy of healthcare delivery in Canada and more specifically in Alberta. Hmm. So this certainly, we, we know that with the last four to five years, five, six years in Alberta, we've, we've suffered, you know, deep economic transformation, but this is, this isn't one of those situations where we're going to blame the economy. This is a series of thinking and it sounds like a trend that we've been on for quite a long time of not, of not changing, of holding on to the way, way it used to be, but then our demands and population outstripped the way we used to be able to work. So the model just kind of, it, it became misaligned with itself. Is that what I'm, is that, sorry, I'm paraphrasing back to you, but is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, I think we were, you know, 30 years ago when I started, we were able to meet the demand. There was never shortages. There was never capitation of procedures uh, in surgery. Um, I, I, I came in after the era of uh, what was called extra billing at that time. And um, I, I, I saw the public system step up and really meet the demands. But I think in all fairness to the public system, the demands have become extremely high. Um, the treatments have become extremely costly. And so in the old model, we were able to deliver the services in a timely fashion. But in the new reality and the, the economics of healthcare, which is very expensive, um, it's just not possible to use the same uh, system that we were able to manage with over the, over the last 30 years. 
is is that tying to some of the push that you're seeing with what the current government now is doing with and like you made the comment about lexicon the chartered approach of you know you yourself working in a chartered hospital is part of that model designed to help offset some of the what was inside the AHS box versus now looking at this giving patients actually back to what you said how, how do we actually conquer this crisis of of access to care well, exactly. Um, and I, I, I believe the current government is very supportive of putting patients first in, 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 in terms of recognizing the crisis of access. They have uh, begun to think fundamentally out of the box by delivery of services and alternative facilities that can offer those services, particularly surgical services. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, the lost opportunities, if we don't support this kind of transformational change, I'll give you an example um, in the world of bariatric surgery, which is not my world, but I do work with other surgeons closely and understand the problems that they have with access. Um, but wait times in this province for bariatric surgery are three to five years. And at this point in time, Alberta does about 1,000 surgeries, bariatric surgeries per year, although the estimated need is about 250,000 people that could benefit. Now, and, and now let me tell you about the benefits. <clears throat> the benefits to uh, a patient that gets timely access to this are transformational in terms of cutting rates of heart attack, stroke, cancer, and extending the lives of these individuals by four to six years. Um, so it dramatically improves patients' quality of life. It's a much cheaper alternative than managing the costs of wait lists that uh, continue to have chronic medical problems, which grow and cost the system a lot. The public system will never have the capacity to address this problem, and thus it kind of ignores it, that that there is this gap that doesn't exist, and the consequences are medical tourism. Hmm. Thousands of Albertans have found this unacceptable and have taken their health in their own hands and gone to other provinces or countries to have their surgeries. So not only do we lose the opportunity to care for Albertans in Alberta, we lose the opportunity to build our own local economy. Those are dollars going out of the province. We even lose the opportunity to build greater expertise and local infrastructure to care for patients in Alberta. Instead, those resources accrue outside of Alberta in places like Ontario, uh, the U.S., Mexico, sometimes Europe. So it's a, it's, it's a costly uh, venture not to provide services within this province that uh, in the longer term, you have to spend to save. And that is a, is a mindset that we need to start adopting in healthcare. That's so interesting when you think about, but on, on the same turn, there's people like if this is, if we look at this even as a Canadian fundamental challenge, there's people from other provinces that are coming here now to be able to pursue some of these private. Is that like, so we're, we're it, it seems kind of ridiculous when you lay it out that we're, that we've created this rule that causes people to go find a workaround and they're just border jumping back and forth and all the extra cost that's incurred where you could literally keep that revenue inside your own, inside your own four borders or your own, your own, your own, your own, your own, your own walls. Exactly. It's a mosaic across the country and patients are, are left wondering how they can access what they need and have the actual choice if they need to, 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 to bring that resource to them, to themselves. And I, I don't think that there's uh, anything wrong with that, but I think that it's probably not the best approach to take, um, but it requires a lot of substantial government and political will to enable legislative changes that that allow patients more choice and actually changes in legislation that might start to really uh, look at the root problem of the crisis of access that we have now. 
Well, it's, you're, 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 you're making my questions easy because you're taking me right where I want to go. So what is the root from your perspective? Because like right away, like from a, from a, just a practicality perspective, like why don't we change that? Just take that one example that you brought. We use bariatric surgeries and we live in a world, be honest, like as customers, like we don't wait for anything. <laughs> we push a button, it gets delivered to our door. And with healthcare, if I have a problem and I have means, I'm going to find a way to solve my problem. So to be able to not take a, what's holding us back? What, what, what magic wand could we wave to get to just kind of change this problem at its core from your perspective? Well, I think what we're lacking is, is the ability to, to challenge ourselves a little bit and um, to take the chance on transformational change, but on, a, on an incremental basis where we look at those areas where we could achieve the gains uh, that we know we can the quickest. And, um, and, and rather than try and, and look at the entire spectrum of healthcare, as Alberta Health has to do, uh, that's a, I, as I said, that's a daunting problem. But let's just start somewhere and, um, and, 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 and see what we can do. You know, um, I have a colleague that I've known for years and years and years, and um, she has been a leader in the public health care system and a surgeon and delivering great quality of care to her patients. And um, she recently spoke to me about the fact that she was having to step down from this position. So, so it's, it's about examples of the bureaucracy that are counterproductive to patient needs and um, she told me that she was going to leave her leadership position because in addition to her regular surgical practice, she was serving on 51 committees, which were dealing at a very high level with policy and strategy and budgets. And her comment to me was that a few of the things they dis- that, that very few of the things they discussed at these meetings really ever got legs and hit the ground. So we spend a lot of time talking about great models, but we need to act. And it's that step between, you know, um, talk and action that we really need to start to shortcut. And I think the way to do that is to start small and incrementally in areas such as bariatric surgery, such as joint replacement surgery, where we know we can do these in focus factories, achieve efficiencies, deliver the best evidence-based care, and look at the market and how do we continue to be efficient and sustainable in that very small microcosm. I do appreciate I do appreciate the 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 start small you know the the learn the crawl the crawl walk run if we want to use some of those terms so there's a there's an argument that always seems to get floated around especially recently you know the 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 current government talks about chartered talks about chartered hospitals chartered you know approaches and that, I appreciate that terminology and how it's being used but then you immediately hear the opposition start oh it's just a two tier system and we're alienating this group and we're going to sacrifice our right to healthcare and then doctors will leave the public system and go to this private and they start always playing this you know, like american style healthcare and start pitching it as a bit of a demon but what i'm hearing from your perspective is that actually is a, maybe a little bit of a false truth well um i yeah that is a that is a very difficult conversation to have because everyone wants the best uh, healthcare they can uh, access, and all of their friends and relatives wants to see as little suffering as possible in those individuals that need that access. But honestly, the the idea of a two tier healthcare system is is farcical, and it, it results in in um, an abundance of medical tourism, where we have an estimated quarter of a million Canadians left Canada last year for non emergency care. If the public system was even close to meeting the need, that Canadian would not need to go and pay. 
And the idea that all good doctors will leave to join the private system, well, I don't think that's true. But the problem is the current system, often good doctors don't get appreciated as well as bad doctors. <laughs> so we have to clean up our act a little bit there too. But at Canada's universal system actually covers less than most OECD countries, about 70% of those costs, in fact. No pharmacare, no dental, no eye care, physiotherapy, these ancillary treatments. What we decide to cover and not cover is completely arbitrary and not based on patient need. It's based on budgets and allocations of budgets to service sectors, and that doesn't work anymore. And back, to your, back to your original point about patient care versus just a, a budget, a top-down approach versus bottom-up, which arguably starting with the, with the patient, could kind of argue you could flip that around. So touching on, I'm curious, just from a doc, from a, from a physician's perspective, and there's been lots in the media lately, certainly has portrayed a, quite a confrontational relationship where the media has really got latched on, especially kind of early COVID days, February, March, April, you know, um, Mr. Shandro was kind of caught up in that. So from your perspective, being on the physician side of the fence, is, is that actually what is going on or is it just like uh, hey i'm the first one to know like media is maybe not giving me the whole story <laughs> so from your perspective what is what does it feel like inside the the halls of, of of power when it comes to our healthcare world right now is it as confrontational as the media is like pitching us on well um i think confrontational is a strong word to use i think we haven't been as collaborative collaborative uh, as an alberta uh, association of physicians, uh, and I think I think we've lost opportunities to be collaborative with with the agenda that the government is is faced with, which, quite frankly, is is a very difficult agenda to try and meet budget and deliver care across all sectors so that it's safe to live in this province. Uh, but at the expense of unnecessary suffering in those areas that are not acute or emergent, um, mm -hmm. that's difficult. I think physicians in this province and across the globe, for that matter, in the pandemic are pretty much uh, stressed to the max, just trying to manage what they used to manage in a completely different environment. But, you know, here's the every maybe it's the sow's ear, silk purse, silver lining concept. But I mean, we are. A, a system and a government uh, that is ready for change and that is rapidly adapting to change and is learning about how to do that change in the process. Um, pandemic preparations have been going through iterations uh, over the last nine months and we're not doing a good job. This is, we, we're seeing record increases in our incidence rates across this country and Alberta is leading the pack in some of them. Yes, so, so, so we need to act on change agents. The pandemic has been a huge change agent. It's changed the way every single person on the planet lives and breathes. Everything that's normal is now not. And uh, we're, we're seeing further restrictions come down the, the pipeline as well just this week. Um, we need to act quickly and we need to act uh, very strongly with changing the way we we uh, manage our healthcare system, because we're right now we're in a crisis of up, you know the, the, the availability of beds to treat COVID patients, and, and certainly this is displacing the the beds that are needed to take other take care of other patients that that really shouldn't have to be waiting. 
No, yeah, it's 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 very it's very real. Nothing like a nothing like a literally a crisis to really shine lights on all of the areas and all the fault lines, basically. So when you think about like you, I hear you say we're we're, we're we've been we've never been a better position to know we need to change. And I would say there's probably everyone out there would some way be like, yeah, we can do better. What's stopping that? Is it the inability to collaborate? Is it certain groups going? You know what? We kind of like we're kind of invested in the way it is, and we'll talk a lot, but maybe we don't really want to change. And I know I'm I'm digging in here, like let's name names, but what 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 is the boat anchor that we like, man, if that group would just kind of break loose and let us do some things, we could move forward. Is it like that? Or is it just a kind of a series of, a series of unfortunate events? Well, I think it's the system that we live in. And I think that political cycles run every four years and uh, healthcare cycles need to be managed on 10 year cycles. And in order to create this transformational change, I think the governments uh, over the last 25 years at least have not really wanted to embrace that change because it does have a negative connotation on the voting public. Yeah. And the way that it's transmitted through the media is often in cycles of disinformation with agendas on the, on the, on the media side. Um, I think we need more objectivity on all levels, whether it's the, the microscope that we're under or what we're doing under the microscope. We, we need to be able to jump and to, to, to stop this fear of change. Is there a new way we need to look at it? Because there's lots, you know, there's lots of rhetoric around. It's, it's hard to, you know, the infinite versus finite. If we're thinking about, you know, healthcare on an infinite continuum of how do we be a healthy community and province and have access to this amazing care 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. But yet we're working on, like you said, was on a four-year or maybe even a couple-year cycle. Because the time you get voted in, you kind of go through some changes, then you're getting ready to defend your position. And it feels like it's very counterintuitive, like a lot of things in our economy, to have that short-term leadership. And I'll call it that. I guess they all want to be in there for longer, but it doesn't always work out that way. Versus what you're talking about isn't something that's going to get changed in 12 or 18 months. Like This is a much longer-term cycle to get us back in the other direction. It's, is there a way we need to think about the, even the way healthcare is led? And, and I know I'm talking kind of almost ridiculous from like, how do you uncouple this from the four-year government cycles that we're dealing with to treat it like the long-term solution that it actually is? Yeah, that's a challenging question. Um, so let me start with the fear factor. Um, there's a lot of fear of change in transforming the healthcare system, which to a certain extent is working, it's comfortable, we accept uh, the status quo, and to move into the more trepid waters of the unknown is, is kind of scary. <laughs> but what's happening is, is the, the need to change, the exigency that we now are faced with in our healthcare environment is driving our system to, to absolutely need to explore new ways to meet the challenges that are out there and are quite frankly not being met today. But the worst fear of all lives in the patient that needs the treatment. <laughs> it lives in the hearts and minds of the family and friends that they have watching them suffer. And as one of my patients once told me, being on a wait list for a procedure isn't healthcare. And she's right. <laughs> so, so yeah. you know, enough about fear. What about the opportunity, I think? Um, there is definitely opportunity to expand the economy as it relates to the healthcare system, the delivery of services and provision of products. Uh, as I said before, uh, here, here's an example of a, of a recent locally based startup, Calgary driven medical device company that seized an opportunity early on in April at the outset of the pandemic to uh, produce a GoFundMe campaign in the company. They were able to bring in masks uh, from China very quickly and to distribute these to the frontline providers. And um, 
Alberta Health Services Procurement quickly latched on this opportunity and uh, helped this company begin to manufacture masks locally in Calgary again, uh, expanding the job uh, possibilities to over 100 more people now working within the healthcare sector and producing over 4 million masks a month to Alberta Health Services first-line providers. So we, we can do that. We can grow things extremely quickly in this environment. And I think the examples that we have for innovation in this province should be aligned more carefully now with healthcare and the um, exportation of our expertise in healthcare outside of the province for a profit, which comes back into a nonprofit system, by the way. Uh, that would be the dream come true. Well, and I really like what you said. That was truly a combination of kind of an entrepreneurial, I would say, Alberta skill set. And I think I, I think I actually know the individuals. Uh, one of the individuals involved in that company you're talking about, I actually went to college with in Montreal. It's a super small world, so I, 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 I think I know that story behind the scene. But a true grassroots Alberta story, coupled with this large kind of monolithic organization, but together they were able to solve a medical concern and a need and fill a need, but they were able to do it from an entrepreneurial perspective by letting the right groups do what they do best. And I think there's a lot to be said from that lesson. I, I take a look. I support that fully. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a, but like you said, that's scary because that might disrupt the status quo a lot. And you know, I don't want to bring up the union word, but it's hard not to talk about it because I know that's a big factor in the healthcare. You know, how much of you know currently the official opposition has a more of a bit of a union agenda? Does that does that get in the way of some of this change? Because that that group sometimes feel like that they really want to protect the like what they have and almost they 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 hold it really close. And change sometimes is pretty slow for those kind of organizations. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I support what, what the union's fundamental, uh, what they stand on in principle is, is good. It it provides standards of of care and it it provides, you know, standards of, uh, workers, uh, opportunities as well. But I think we, we need to move into a blended model where we, 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 we can also operate an independent system that's alternative to, to that which exists across the broad spectrum of healthcare. And I'm not talking about taking everybody and replacing them with non-unionized workers. That's not a, that's not feasible. It's not, it's not sensible. It's not ethical, but we, we, we need to start to look at where can we outsource things in ways that a facility, a service, a process uh, can be under their own business plan knowing the market that they are serving, not having to have 15 to 25 different masters across the spectrum of healthcare, but rather, you know, be a, an inch wide and a mile deep in what you do and just get really good at it, really efficient at it, and really innovative at creating evidence-based care that is sustainable. Hmm. It makes, yeah, it, it makes a ton of sense when you just say it like that, because it's hard to go and go, wow, that doesn't, why would we even think about that? Versus the fundamentals of just good patient care and also running a good service-based business. And I don't want to minimize it at all by calling it a business, but there are some elements about business is you provide good service so that you can grow your business. Like there is part of those elements that I think really track here. Right. When you look globally and someone who has the experience and been a lot involved, I'm sure you have friends and uh, all over the world. Is there anywhere that you look to and go, wow, like they've got it kind of figured out. Like there's jurisdictions where there's elements. Like, I, again, which, which you can't, there's nothing new in the world. What can we steal? Like who's doing this really well and where can we borrow some ideas? Yes. Yeah, I don't think there's any one place in the world that does everything right, but I think there's pockets of people that have really got it right in certain areas. I think in the United Kingdom, for example, I have a physician friend who uh, 
has watched the transition. Uh, I, I was actually a fellow there 30 some years ago, and we've watched our careers evolve within the two systems that we have. And uh, we're both uh, same age, long in the tooth. <laughs> experience, Bob, experienced, experienced. Yeah, experience. That's a better way to put it. Um, so, so I'll give you an example of a patient that he described to me that uh, had a neurological problem and within a week of seeing their family physician, they were in a neurologist's office. I think our wait times to see a neurologist for simple problems in this province is over a year and a half or maybe longer. So how can they do that in the UK where they have the NHS, a publicly funded system, but how can they do that? Well, they run it collaboratively with alternative providers, chartered hospitals, alternative sources of care that are outside of the public health spectrum. And let's not forget in, in Canada, much of the healthcare is delivered in a private business setting through family doctors, through doctor's offices, supporting staff, paying benefits, paying lease rates, advancing the economy in a small business model. So why can't we just look at the way they're doing neurology in England, for example? Or if you wanted to look to Australia, quite really good leadership in alternative care models, total joint replacement especially uh, is a model system uh, that they have there. And again, it's, it's often run in alternative care facilities that are basically driven by one or a number of a few procedures that they can optimize. Uh, they can, de- you know, develop the evidence-based selection criteria and the evidence-based treatment criteria that they need to spend every dollar they spend efficiently. And to be able to develop that business model in a focus factory, if you will, uh, where, where those efficiencies are optimized. And let's not kid ourselves about what, what profit means in the healthcare model. What we have with the public system is a not perf- not-for-profit model, obviously, but every single aspect of that system is driven by a profit motive. When you get an apple on your tray in the hospital, somebody had to grow that apple, somebody had to pick it, somebody had to deliver it to you, and then one of the hospital providers had to put it on your table, and then somebody has to take it away and put it in the garbage. Every step of that process is a for-profit model. So let's not kid ourselves about what healthcare means in terms of where our costs are. Because there are areas where we could shave those costs, and that's what you do in business. You look at how you can contain those costs and optimize your your efficiencies um, based on very rational and sound business-like approaches to how you manage your business. What, what I'm hearing so much of what you're saying is fundamentally also, we just don't under, like as an individual, we, I'm going to use the proverbial we, don't necessarily really understand how it works. Like you said, it still has to be a functioning, it's, there's still monetary exchange happening. It, like as a, as a consumer, we walk in, we expect free access to healthcare, but we're already living in a model where there is, there is private for-profit businesses that run in parallel and they've been in place. It just so seems the media loves to latch on to anything that looks like it could feel threatening in some way to this belief we have that I don't think is actually accurate. The more I'm hearing you talk, like we live in this and it's not a two-tier system. It's a functioning model that encompasses both a public system and a private system that work in parallel to each other. And thinking back to my two conversations with the two different sides of the aisle from the NDP to the UCB party, it feels like we're moving down the road to just being more or all in on that that parallel model, but the media is just thrashing that concept. It, to me, feels with just false information and preying on the fact that I, as a, as a general pers- member of the public, don't know the facts. <laughs> well, I think the I think the burden of responsibility of the media uh, needs to follow the patient. <laughs> 
Why don't they ask the patient that has come out of the facility that was alternatively run, privately operated, whatever you want to call it, why do they not talk to those patients and say, how was your experience? Right? I never hear that in the news. All I hear about is the conglomerate where there's a collective um, will of uh, what is good for patients and patients aren't even involved in, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the outcomes of those uh, news stories. It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Whatever you do, don't talk to your customer. <laughs> just an interesting parallel when you put it out there. But also, some these privately these privately run facilities are are part of the publicly funded system, though. Correct? Like this isn't an individual necessarily. Yeah, and I think that's where that illusion gets. Like, <clears throat> oh, I I can't be expected to pay. Well, these these privately run facilities are being publicly funded. Like that individual who goes there to get care isn't paying out of pocket to be there. And I think that gets missed around a little bit in the message from from my perspective. Yes. And, and, and that is absolutely correct. And that is absolutely what the Alberta Surgical Initiative is all about, is providing better access, quicker access, if you will, to patients, but in a different facility than they would have expected to be in the public system going to. Um, what, what, really, uh, what, what really matters is, are, are, are we hitting the mark for our patients? Right. And so the, the Alberta Surgical Initiative is, is gaining access to patients that's free and just delivered in a different way and, uh, and operated uh, in a way that focuses on the customer and, and building the business around that customer. Well, Mr. Shandro talked about the you know, facilities in Alberta with X amount of beds and by two in the afternoon, those beds are no longer utilized for surgeries, that they're sitting empty, that we have these, you know, these resources that are, aren't being used in our, in our current model. And that level of efficiency is leading to exactly what you said. It's once you get there, the process and the experience will be bar none quality. But if you can't get in the door and, you know, 18 month wait isn't a healthcare system. That stuck with me like that. I, I like that one a lot because it really drives it home. But man, it's been so slow. It went from a couple months to six months to 10 months. It's like the slow burn of, you know, you don't realize the heat's turning up until it's 18 months in. And then now we have a problem and it's a long way back. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, that's about managing the risk and, and we need to be better at that. Because anything we're doing now without making some drastic changes, I'm assuming we're still on the path of 18 months will become 19 months will become 20 months. Like nothing, if we keep the status quo, we know what we're going to get, which is a continued slide in a, in a world where things should be getting better, but they're kind of, they're technically getting worse when it comes to access. Yeah. And, and from a perspective of just talent in the province, are you seeing, like you had an example of your, of, of your, of your close friend who was on 51 boards. Is that what you said? 51 or, so, or groups or functioning groups? Like that doesn't seem even viable for someone who's actively still, still work. It still has something else to do, but her having to step down, feeling that she wasn't getting any traction. Are we, are you seeing talented medical professionals leaving the province because of frustration, because of some of this conflict? Is, is that happening? Cause I've seen the, the media has portrayed that a little bit indirectly for, and from what I've seen. You know, I don't think it's 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 the the proportion of physicians in this province is very small. They like where they're at. Uh, they want to help make the system better. Um, they want to be innovators. Uh, that's a large reason why people stay in Alberta because that's the culture we have here. So I don't see a mass exodus of physicians because of the current problems particularly within the agreements that have been, uh, you know, the agreements that are still, <laughs> the agreements that are no longer agreements that we're yeah, trying yeah. To, to, to move forward on. Um, 
I don't see a mass exodus of physicians. I'm, I mean, in my own sphere in surgery, I don't. I hear of it, so it's out there. Uh, but it's, I don't think it's the problem that the media would would have people believe. I've often found uh, the, those things you happen to know about and you see it in the media, you're like, oh, that's, wow, that doesn't seem like what I actually thought was real. But for so many of us, that's where we get our information. Well, unfortunately, we get it from social media and we get it in 10 or 20 second sound bites that leave us feeling a certain way, which is what it's designed to do. But it doesn't necessarily leave us informed, <laughs> which is arguably what it should be doing. But anyway, that's a whole other podcast on <laughs> on the pros and cons of sound bites <laughs> that you and I will not not solve today. <laughs> so you, you've got your magic wand. You're sitting You're sitting there looking out over over this, this, this environment that we have patient, patient care and access to care is at your primary objective. You've said that loud and clear. And I appreciate, I think everyone can appreciate that. What are some of the things that you would do? What would be on your, on your, like, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to flip this apple cart over checklist. Well, I'd like to see us enabled to deliver good um, because that's what we like to do for our patients. <clears throat> but there's the good and then there's the bad. And then there's the ugly in healthcare that we live with in, in Canada and in Alberta. Um, you know, the good is a patient-centered gain model where evidence-based diagnostics and treatments are delivered in a public system uh, accessible to the entire population that system serves and where the needs and challenges that the healthcare system uh, is able to meet. So that's where timely access is the key principle to the vision, to, to providing the best services we, we have that are evidence-based. So, you know, our current healthcare system strives to obtain these goals, but it's failing to do so because of the access crisis in particular. I think it's because the system isn't nimble and is not diverse in the models of patient care provisions available out there and isn't willing to embrace some of them at some risk. I, I agree. Um, the current system denies the choice of patients to seek timely access to the care that they need. And, and we have to stop that. So, so that, you know, we, we try and strive for good, make it a patient-centered gain model, but we're not delivering that patient-centered gain because too much of our inefficiencies are resulting in longer and longer wait lists and uh, lack of choice for access to what needs to be provided as a, as a service. And uh, we need to move towards more of the good, patient-centered gain, evidence-based, affordable, sustainable, <clears throat> and we have to change the way to we fundamentally deliver those services in some areas to achieve it. So there's, that's, that would be good. I would love that. Uh, the bad is a provider centered game model where, um, <laughs> where the business of providing healthcare takes over the product of providing that healthcare for the customer. Um, the product should always be patient centered gain, but in a provider centered model, the centricity of the patient care is lost to the business of generating revenue, quite frankly, and I, that, that's bad. So this is not necessarily because all providers of healthcare services do so for the need to generate an income. This is not lost on the patient from my experience, but if they feel the patient feels marginalized by a business model that doesn't put them in the center of the product, then the providers make the decisions which are sometimes opposed to the good of the patient care. Again, a bad model, I think. Um, you know, to give you a concrete example of that, in my own experience as an orthopedic surgeon, I've had patients that did not want to wait for the procedures that I could deliver to them. So they went abroad and had procedures done and came back with complications, which I had to rectify in the public health care system because patients had to make that choice to go outside the country and they were in a provider-centered gain model, perhaps, right? They get stuck. So um, 
we can avoid that medical tourism, as I've referred to before, and keep those dollars in the economy here and make them uh, work much better in innovative ways that we have the resources, the human resources are here. Uh, we have so much over, you know, overage now in the oil and gas sector that so many of these skills are transferable, engineering skills, sales and marketing skills, all of these things, optimization of big organizations. We could gain so much information in collaborations with the oil and gas sector. And quite frankly, I think a lot of them are sitting on their hands right now. So let's, let's, let's get engaged with, with people that have driven the economy in this province forever. Well, I do. I do appreciate we have we have an abundance of skilled labor that, unfortunately, some of them may be sitting on their hands. The opportunity to say, "Hey, what little bit do you need to learn to then bring all these skills that you have that are very relevant, like you said, to large organizations and big transformations and big and large scale projects?" That's an interesting concept, but it's like, oh, well, I've never worked in that sector, so I'm immediately blocked out of it. I think we also need to get that's a mindset that I think is slowly shifting. But the faster we can shift it, the better we can get Albertans back to doing what they do best, which is making things happen. Right. And what's and what's the ugly? Because I do like your good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> so the the um, the ugly is uh, the ugly of healthcare is prevalent all over the world. It's not unique to, to Canada, but this is where providers seek to sell hope to patients that they can cure the maladies that they come to them with, which is not evidence based. Which is basically, as I say, the ugly is where unregulated providers um, are enabled to treat with fringe and quite frankly, sometimes unsafe treatments, which patients are given the hope will work. Well, that's ugly. Oh, selling, selling, selling hope can be a shady business. I, I, I agree. It's a, from a leadership perspective, you always want to instill hope. But if you think about forcing our population, our, our, our community to go abroad to, because at a certain point we all get frustrated and we'll, and we'll do whatever it takes to try to find a solution. And if we're forcing that model, you're right. We're actually putting people at a greater risk. Right. I heard that loud and clear. Well, Dr. Bray, I really appreciate, well, first of all, your candor. Thank you for just coming on and kind of telling me straight, which I, which I really value. And this is sometimes a tough topic to get down to the brass tacks on of like what's actually going on. And God knows you can't find the truth in the media, it seems these days. And everyone's stewarding a storyline versus really understanding when it comes right back, what I'm hearing is the patient. What I'm hearing is if we can, if we can get this access under control, we've got the quality. And so, you know, we've got the right ingredients, but this this 18-month or 24-month wait times by creating more access through charters and partnership and almost feels like just growing on what we already have in place versus thinking it's some new way of doing doing healthcare that's going to be a two-tier US model. That's not what I'm hearing at all from you. That actually we have these this parallel system and there's other examples in the world that are doing it well. If we lean in a little bit heavier on that and collaborate together, I also heard get better at communicating with each other with some willingness to take some risks on disrupting old models, not risks about care. That's not what we're talking about when you use the word risk. Right. That's a, it seems pretty straightforward when you lay it out. <laughs> well, well, you know, Tyler, I, I listened to um, Ann Collins, who's the current president of the Canadian Medical Association, speaking in the House of Commons last week. And um, Dr. Collins uh, said that we are at a critical tipping point and the federal government needs to do more to keep our system and the people who work within it from collapsing. Um, we need to work together provincially and federally, which we could do better on as well. And I think her message was heard loud and clear. And I hope that it leads to change because the recent uh, first minister's meeting across Canada in 16 years has put healthcare as their top priority for uh, their discussion points with the federal government, which I think is a good step forward. Again, the environment is, is ripe uh, for 
change and uh, evolution to more innovative models of delivering our healthcare system to patients quicker. I, I do appreciate capitalizing the fact that we've gone through COVID and like the, it'd be great if we hadn't gone through it, but we had. So let's take advantage of the, the increased focus and our opportunity for change. The, you know, And this is maybe sounds insensitive, but I know in business, the comment gets thrown around the boardroom, don't waste a good crisis. Take your opportunities and learn, change, pivot, make all those decisions that you were maybe too scared to make before, but now you have no choice. So, so get out there and, and do it. And just curious, from a federal to provincial perspective, how much oversight, like, I guess, how much influence on a federal level versus what uh, each province can still decide to do on its own? Because it is fairly autonomous, is it not? Like, each yeah. province has its own mandates? Healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction. Okay, that's what I, that's what I thought. Mm. Which it's, So from a, thinking about it on a, on a first minister's perspective, and they're talking about it as a group, it's just, is it literally more of a collaboration from province to province to find out what we can learn from each other to just be better? Mm-hmm. I think best practice models are, are what they're talking about and, and how to enable new programs through a federally sponsored uh, agenda where, where everybody can benefit and we can start to look at strengths and weaknesses of certain aspects of certain jurisdictions in Canada's healthcare system. Okay. Is there anywhere in Canada that, that does have some things right? <laughs> so we, we've called that a lot of negative today. I always like to leave on a positive note. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I set you up there, Bob. <laughs> You know, I'm sure there is. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are pockets in every province in this country uh, where either the public system or a chartered hospital is delivering absolutely outstanding care to patients in timely fashion. It would be nice to know how they've done it and to look at those as templates for how to go forward in all the other areas that we could achieve those benefits in. I appreciate that. I still feel very fortunate and I know a lot of people that work in the healthcare sector. So this, this is certainly a huge shout out to everybody who's out there putting in the days and putting in the long hours to provide the level of care. I think we just need to support that group of individuals also as best we can. So not only they can provide the best care, but they, they, they feel like they've got that support and got the, uh, acro- you know, they've got the accolades that they, that they deserve for what they, for what they do for all of us. Right. Bob, thank you so much for taking your time today, Perspective. And I really enjoyed, um, again, just uh, this has been an interesting journey for me as someone, as an individual who, you know, I was, I, I know I need to be concerned about it, but I just didn't have enough information. And the media was taking me on a bit of a roller coaster. So I appreciate you kind of rounding off the story a little bit and giving me, giving me a very different perspective on not only what's actually happening, but also some few ideas of how we can actually make it better. So on, on that note, thank you for your time today, sir. I appreciate it. Very much appreciate the opportunity to speak. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye now.